sorry. Let's start over. Um, thank you, Lord, for the gift of this day. We didn't create ourselves. We're so capable. Um, it's amazing to have been created in your image and um, be able to do so much. So many modern theories like evolution and um, a step away from an ape just don't do justice to all the special things that we have as humans. We take them so for granted. Um, strengthen all of us to turn to you to make you more a part of our lives constantly to help recover the ties we lost with you in our fall. Um, a special prayer that the work that we do will help in that way. It'll strengthen in us a love of things here on this earth. Um, our faith, our Catholic faith, does everything it can to hold reason and faith together when the rest of the world doesn't do that. The Protestant world breaks it. The secular world um, has no sense of miracles or sacraments. It's a strange place for us to be in. Um, it's a special um, gift, a special grace, a special burden. Strengthen all of us in our efforts to live up to that burden, to grow into it, um, to become more and more the people that you've given each of us to be. Um, help us in our work. Um, let this work bear fruit in all that we do with each other, in our families, in our work, um, in the communities in which we move about. I ask a special um, grace for Mary. She's at a turning point in her life, obviously. If she's had a serious relationship and has suffered disappointments, um, they will add to the difficulty she faces in college. Um, buoy her up. Let her know that it's in trials like these that we learn to see who we are and who you are. So help her turn to you for help, take comfort in you, um, to, to, to find a help in a struggle like this. Um, um, ask a, a grace for Connie and her family, that of so much of what she bears, and Kay and David, uh, particularly with their daughter, um, but for all of us. <laughs> you guys may be offended at this, but tolerate me for a second. There's this wonderful line in Faulkner when um, a, a guy who's making a conversion is on his way to prison and stops by at a whorehouse. And the madam there, I hope we get to Faulkner, I hope we get to Faulkner who brings us into the modern world, but the woman there says, um, because he's not going to have an easy life, and he's a man of honor, and she says, we're all poor sons of bitches. <laughs> we're all <laughs> we're all poor sons of bitches, and it's true. I mean, we all are, according to our faith, we are the worst of sinners. Um, help all of us to carry that and take a joy in it, to not be afraid or too proud, or because it's only when we carry our sins that we can do what it is we're called to do with others. If we feel like we've passed them and we're better than other people's, we just so often look down on them and can't do what you ask us to do. You came for sinners, you made that clear. So help us all in our struggles to stay cheerful, to be hopeful, um, 
to always struggle to stay with you and bring you to all that we do. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Why is my picture not showing up here? What does that mean? Rest assured we can see you. It's all good. Okay. Okay. Um, okay, let's do the... I want to get back to the lyrics. Just to warn you guys, I'm thinking about... Because we're, we're getting to a... Um, I don't know what to call it. A point of... A crossroads. Uh, you know, after Shakespeare we either disband or go forward into the modern world um, in a, a different world, just a very, very different world. Um, and um, you all know that we did the uh, Auden's, the Canonical Hours, which was not an easy poem, a long poem. And I don't know why it's, it's sort of haunting me that there's, I, it may be the political landscape and the the different sides between the conservatives and the more and more the radical left, you know, the the longing for a utopian ideal and the wanting to return to something we lost, the tension between those two things, it's very much in my mind um, because I, I think America is at a point of serious crisis, pretty serious crisis. I don't know, but we'll return to the lyrics. Um, I, I think probably what I'll do is read some of the, my old favorites that we haven't heard in a long time. But tonight I wanted to go back to um, a couple of ballads from the Christian Middle Ages because in some ways they're a reminder of what we've lost. Um, so I'd like to read those, just get us back doing the lyric. The two ballads that I've chosen are The Three Ravens and Timur Mortis. In Three Ravens we're, we're presented with these ravens who are watching um, a knight die and nature respond. And the beauty of it is that it, it's a reminder of how what a, what a noble place man has in creation. In the modern world you know that that's not true. In the modern world our view is low. We came from monkeys or from a chance event. According to the ancient view our, our beginnings were high the modern view is low, the ancient view is high, we, we were made in God's image. Um, and here in the poem, nature comes to the service of man in a tender, um, kind of, with a kind of pathos to what happens. It's a, it's a beautiful reminder that nature is, according to the Christian view, nature is responsive to man. It serves him as the paragon of creation. So it, it's so unlike our modern view which looks at man as if he's a sort of nothing. We don't know where he came from, we don't know where he's going, he's a bundle of desires, he can have what he wants, the role of government is to protect his choices, that's it. Doesn't matter what his choices are. A woman can decide to have abortion. A, a girl at 12 can decide to have abortion without her parents consent. It has the protection of government because the, the role of the government, as our modern government sees it, is, is the, the highest good is choice. It has to be protected, even if that choice is against nature. So it's a very, very different world. Um, that's The Three Ravens in Timur Mortis. It's a poem um, that comes from the heart of the church, Ex Cordiae Ecclesiae, from the heart of the church, um, reminding us that we're not to forget death. 
that death is all around us. We touched on that last week because you remember Hamlet learns when he's in the graveyard that death has been with him since the moment of his birth. He didn't see it, but he's seen it now. So, timor mortis, death troubles me, death disturbs me. The church says, memento mori, remember death. Because if we don't, we won't really live our life the way we should. It's a precious, precious thing. When we start taking life for granted, we lose part of what's precious about it. Okay, so I, I'll leave the comments at that. The the uh, refrains, I think, are taken from um, uh, music traditions. I, they they may express a dance. So when the when the ballads were being sung, people were dancing and they express a move. They they may call to mind um, something from farm life. I'm I'm not sure. Um, but in the three ravens, three ravens after each stanza, we've got those refrains: down a down he down, with a down dairy dairy down down. So the three ravens. Remember the lyric is a reminder that there's a music to everything we're doing, even in Hamlet, the play. It's a play, but it has a center, and that center is musical. It holds all the parts together. Even if we can't, even if it's not palpable and we can't touch it, it's there. All art implies a musical center. That was one of the fundamental principles we took away from Boethus. Remember the image of the circle with the still point at the center? It's that that holds everything together. If there weren't that center, the play would go off. It would fly off into space, its parts. But it doesn't. It holds together. So even if we're not aware of it, um, there is a harmony of parts. There's a musical quality. Shakespeare poetry holds on to that. It's very musical. If, if we were to read the play aloud, you'd hear the poetry, the, the, the rhythm of the lines, the rhyming sometimes. They're all put to music because they have a musical center. So, the three ravens. There were three ravens sat on a tree, down and down, hey down, hey down. There were three ravens, ravens sat on a tree with a down, down, hey down. They were as black as they might be with a down, dairy, 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 down, down. The one of them said to his mate, where shall we our breakfast take? Down a down, hey down, hey down. Down in yonder green field, it should, if I were doing this in Middle English, it would be, down in yonder green field, there lies a nick slain under his shield. Down a down, hey down, hey down. His hounds they lie down at his feet, so well they can their master keep. Down a down, hey down, hey down. His hawks they fly so eagerly, there's no foul, dare him come nigh. Nature's protecting him. It's watching out for him. All nature surrounds, envelops him. Down there comes a fallow doe. She's carrying a, a birth. She's going to give birth. But it's more important to protect this night. Down there comes a fallow doe, as great with young as she might go. Down a down, hey down, hey down. She lifted up his bloody head and kissed his wounds that were so red. Down a down, hey down, hey down. 
She got him up upon her back and carried him to Earthen Lake. Down and down, hey down. She buried him before the prime. She was dead herself, ere even song time. Down and down, hey down, hey down. God send every gentleman, such hawks, such hounds, and such a leman. Down and down, hey down, hey down. So beautiful affirmation of a nature. We've lost sense of it because today we tend to see nature through mathematical abstractions. We've lost a grasp of concrete things in their relations to each other. In the Christian world, there, there was an ability to see that nature was responsive to man. It moved with him. Timur Mortis, in what estate soever I be, Timur Mortis, contribut me. The thought of death disturbs me, is the Latin translation. As I went on a merry morning, I heard a bird both weep and sing. This was the tenor of her talking. Timur mortis, contribut me. I asked that bird what she meant. I am a musket, both fair and gent. For dread of death, I am all shent. Timur mortis, contribut me. When I shall die, no, no day, what country or place, I cannot say. Wherefore this song, sing I may. Timur mortis, contribute me. By the way, I want to stop here. For, I, sorry, I hate doing this, but I, I, I don't want to miss the chance because my mind is going and I'll forget. Reminds me of what Kay said last week when we were talking about Ophelia, why she sings. I'm going to come back to it and ask Kay to repeat it, but, but the importance of singing in a time of trial because so often when we meet hard times, we fall apart, we become incoherent. Here, a, a bird is singing to keep his sanity, to hold on to a harmony, a stability. You know, it's, it's protective to sing. Um, that's why, so, I mean, you know, so often in the dark, we whistle as kids, or we'll sing a tune. It gives us a strength, that harmony, that sense that we're connected with some musical center. When I shall die, no, no day, what country or place, I cannot say. Wherefore this song, sing I may, Timur mortis, contribut may. Jesu Christ, when he should die, to his father he gan say, Father, he said, in Trinity, Timur mortis, contribut may. Remember, Christ said, take this cup away from me. Um, All Christian people, behold and see, this world is but a vanity, and replete with necessity, Timur mortis, contribut may. Wake I or sleep, eata or drinka. When eon me lasta enda do thinka, for greater fira me soul to shrinka. Timur mortis, contribut me. God grant us grace him for to serve, and be at our end when we starve, and from the fienda he us preserve. Timur mortis, contribut me. I was trying to throw in some Middle English just so you could hear it, because it, it really is lovely to hear. Um, just go, I, I don't want to spend any time in this, but go back to the third before the last, all Christian people behold and see this world is but a vanity and replete with necessity. It's interesting that the two things that people most have to contend with is vanity and a necessity, those things that are determined that we can't change. You know, they're a part of what goes on in our nature. Those are the things that present us with sometimes the hardest problem. 
Okay, let me stop. Any any comments on these poems or responses or? A question, Bob. Yeah. What was the re when you were reading Three Ravens? What was the refrain that you were using? Because I was reading an online version and it didn't have it. Wow, I'm I I don't think I can answer that, Mike. Um, it's really interesting because I read this last night to the Francis group and somebody asked the identical question. Um, I don't know. I, I think the phrases are taken from harvesting time, down, down, a down, hay, down. You know, to throw bales of bales of hay. And I, right. but okay. I also that's that's it. Yeah, that's that's what you. What I was wondering about. Well, I'm I'm not sure. I'm. This is just a <clears throat> sort of wild guess. But I also okay. think that because it's a ballad, it was it was sung to dancing. People would dance in circles around this stuff. And it may refer to moves that correspond to harvesting. You, you know, I, I'm not sure. But I, I think the likelihood is that there would be some connection with harvesting and, you know, mm -hmm. unloading bale or, and dancing and dance movements that related to that. Honestly, I'm not sure. That's a wild mm -hmm. guess. And I, and I may be completely wrong. No, thank you. Yeah. Any other comments before we turn to Hamlet? Did any of you guys, I'm sorry the the note to you was so late. Um, I, I sent a note just before class. I made a vow that I wasn't going to do any notes anymore. You know that I said I'm, um, what's the word, off the cuff or going to these sort of blind um, because it, I was really, when I first got back online it was a little bit of a struggle to do all this. I know Hamlet, you know, but it's really interesting when I do it in class and I reread it, I, I'm reminded of how much I forget. But I, I tried to throw together some notes. If you haven't gone online, go online and look at them. I think they'll help. In the notes that I sent, I asked everybody to look at the juror picture. Did you all look at it? It's, it's from St. Gregory's Mass. Did anybody get a chance to look at it? Go online after the class. You don't have to do it now, but it it's, hangs over my desk. Um, if I could, I'm not going to move the camera. Um, it's an image of St. Gregory at the Mass. If you look at, let's see, how do I do this and not give it away? I'm not going to give it away. You look at the picture and see if you can find the irony. There's no way to see the irony of the picture if you don't see the whole. If you just look at parts and you don't put the parts together, you'll miss an irony. Where do we find the picture? It's online. Chuck, I, I don't know if I, I, I I'm assuming, I'm, you, everybody else has been doing this for a while, maybe I didn't give you directions. If you go on our site to mm -hmm. the bottom of the content page, there are um, two options for St. Francis and C's, Elizabeth yes. Seton. And if you check into either one of these, you could go into the um, hard copy files that I download. So you can get notes, you can get papers. Um, yeah. There's a lot in there. There's study guides. Um, I'm wary of putting study guides online because they're, they're sort of expensive and copyrighted. But notes to classes and commentaries and things like that that 
for anybody who wants to follow these things up, they're available. So if they're hot copies, you can print them. The poems are there. There are poetry lists. So every, everything's there. For Elizabeth Ann Seaton, go to the modern. So there'll be files. Go to the modern file or Renaissance. Uh, the oh, there. Yeah, I see the picture. Yeah. Sure. Oh, good, good. <coughs> so you can go into Shakespeare, under tragedy and comedy, and under tragedy you'll find Hamlet and some other things. Yeah. Okay, let's... Um, can you turn that fan on one? Just on one. Um, with respect to this whole, um, why is this thing not? I don't know what. Does does anybody know what spotlight means? No, but the presentation seems normal. Yeah, I just don't have a sense, so I'm I'm not sure where I'm oriented to the picture, but. With respect to this, this notion of holes, I, I wanted to use that as the focus of my opening remarks on Hamlet. Um, remember that in one sense, as we move through the play, we're in scene after scene after scene in a way that reminds us of scenes in our own lives. We can be cooking, we can be at the kitchen, we can be talking about things in our kids. We know that there's political chaos outside. And as a matter of fact, we know it's in our neighborhoods. I mean, right now there's an election is going on in South Lake that has got everybody um, with their backs up um, because one of them is radically far left and one's conservative. And so there's a push to get out and, and vote. But the implications of that outcome are going to be real. Um, because in the one case, it's, you know, it's, it's moving in the direction of I don't want to call it woke culture of teachers telling kids what they can or can't believe or things they can or cannot say or um, because there's an ideology behind them. So in one case, teachers are not passing on an inheritance. They're trying to, um, I want to be careful. Um, the, the, truthfully, the real word is indoctrinate. I mean, what they're doing is trying to shape the minds to create a world that conforms to their vision of the world. So in one, we're carrying on a pass and working with it, trying to improve it, to live up to it. And the other, it, um, it's the result, the fruit of a vision. It's a utopian sort of visionary. And those are the, those are the issues, if I can, some of you may not agree with that presentation, but the point of it is that there's a lot going on in the world that's affecting our family. How well do we see holes? Or are we so caught up in parts that we don't see the relationships between things? Remember the image of Boethius was a still point at a circle. The closer you get to that still point, the closer you get to seeing things the way God does. Every work we've read, on my part, has been an effort to try to get to the whole, what that whole action is, okay? And um, I want to get to that with Hamlet tonight. What's the whole? And behind it is this question is, is God at work there? Is there something going on to, to show that what Shakespeare's doing is in conformity with, with what um, Boethius said? That there's a still point at the center. Is God present? Is he working? If so, how do we know? Where? Shakespeare gives us no image of them, the way he does in Homer, the way Homer does, where he shows the gods everywhere. 
We don't get an image, but we've got an action. Is he at work? How do we know? Um, and here's the reason I want to I want to open with with this kind of this these remarks. What's at stake in Hamlet is um, there was a king. He was murdered by his brother. The play opens when his brother takes over the authority of the kingship. He marries the former king's wife. He establishes himself in power. We looked at it. We looked at his opening State of the Union. And I remarked that if you remember the way in which Claudius is just a masterful Machiavellian king, he manipulates people so well. He puts everybody to work on the play. Um, Polonius, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. I mean, um, he asked Polonius to get his daughter to spy, to work with them. So we're watching, we're watching a regime um, move in a certain direction because of a treacherous act, the killing of a king. So the opening words, something's rotten in the state of Denmark, can just be passed off. But they're true. There's a rotting taking place. And as we watch the play, we can see the implications of it. Hamlet's going to kill Polonius by mistake. The effects of that are going to be disastrous. Laertes is going to come home with a mob around him wanting to overthrow the king. So one thing after another is um, falling apart. When Hamlet kills Polonius, um, Claudius realizes that he could have been there. He wants to get Hamlet out of the country, so he's going to send him to England. So every, almost every event in some ways can be traced back to that wrong. The killing of a king, because to kill a king is to attack a whole people. And we're watching a whole people suffer from that act. While Claudius, ironically, is doing everything he can to, tr to try to protect what he did. So the ironies, the tensions are really deep. Um, there's only one person who can see the whole or gets close to seeing the whole, and that's Hamlet because of a private revelation. Nobody is privy to it. Nobody can see what he sees. The point that I want to underscore here is this. This is my point. Everybody in the play, all the citizens, Hamlet's friends, Polonius, Ophelia, every, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, all of them think everything's okay. They're living by appearances, just like the people in Plato's cave. Are you guys following me? They're all living, that is, to put it more strongly in contemporary terms, they're all living according to codes of respectability. The king has taken office, they're all supporting him, everybody's going about their business, everybody thinks everything's okay. Am, am I, is everybody following? I'm trying to put this as strongly as I can. They're all going about their life as if everything's okay, just the way we do. But something's wrong at the center. Who sees it? Who's able to see it and adjust the way he lives? Um, remember the opening lines in the State of Address when um, Claudia says, for all our thanks. Remember? Um... Here we, as twere, with a defeated joy, with an auspicious and drop, droop, dropping eye, with mirth in funeral and with dirge in marriage, he's using language to make it seem like he can resolve contradictories. 
to make it easier for people to go along. He's doing that in language. How many politicians are able to use language to get people to see something away when it's not that way? Just not, particularly in our world as a Christian, hope. Think about presidents who use the word hope or, or chime in with a biblical language to encourage people to do something when, as a matter of fact, what's going on is not going to produce what they say. Um, in Act 4, Scene 1, um, this is when Polonius has been killed and the king is talking with Gertrude and she discloses what happened and describes what happened and, and um, Claudius's um, um, made anxious. Um, um, he's going to send Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to find the body, but he's just unnerved for a moment. And he says, go seek him out, speak fair, and bring the body in into the chapel. I pray you haste this. You can imagine how she, he's a king who wants to control everything. Imagine this moment for a king who's just killed somebody. He's got to do everything he can to keep control in the state. Suddenly he learns that the man of state, his head of state, is killed. Come, Gertrude, we'll call up our wisest friends and let them know both what we mean to do and what's untimely done. I, that's, a, that's a nothing line. But if you put it together with the line opening where he says, our thanks for all, you know, that everybody's followed, everybody's... He's going to go to all the wisest people, he's going to say what's going to happen, and you know that he's going to manipulate them. He's going to tell them what he's doing, and everybody's going to go along. And nobody will see that they're being complicit in a crime. Is everybody following? That's how dark this play is. And I, and I asked you guys a week ago, or a couple of weeks ago, how is America like Denmark? Are we really, are we as aware as we should be of a whole going on around us? Are we seeing through things, or are we just taking appearances as they seem to be? without questioning, without wondering what's behind. That's Plato's cave. Let me stop because that's, that's, a, a, that's a really important point for my opening. An evil is at work. Everybody's caught up in it. Nobody has a sufficient sense of it except Hamlet. Gertrude's going to be undone by it. The kingdom is unraveling very slowly. Um, any, let me stop. Any questions at this point about this notion of whole and parts and why it's so important in seeing this play. Okay. Um, I want to take this notion of a hero standing outside of his world because you know that that private revelation placed Hamlet there. Um, and I, I want to, once again, I want, to tra I want to say this as strongly as I can because I happen to believe, some of you may differ with me on this, but I happen to believe what, that one of the, um, what to put it, how to put this, one of the greatest inducements for a spirit of resignation is living in a world of respectability. We all tend to measure ourselves by a respectable culture. I would say of this group that very few of us would like to thumb our noses at a respectable culture. There's an adversarial culture who finds everything wrong with that. That's what 
makes it an adversarial culture. It stands against it and it reminds this respectable culture of its hypocrisies. You know, that this respectable culture seems really good when as a matter of fact there's some things wrong with it. Every work that we've read, every major work that we've read, calls into question a respectable culture, the way things are. Achilles steps outside of that honor code. It's only when he does that he can help answer the flaws in it. Odysseus stands outside of a code of marriage, and we get an image of marriage that's unlike the other marriages in the play, or I mean the, the epic. Menelaus's and Hector's are the two important ones in the beginning. Dante steps outside of a respectable code. He, I mean, he, he calls into question almost everything that Florence is doing. He puts popes in hell. Boethius is standing outside a respectable, respectable culture placed him there. He's being condemned for a crime he did not commit. So every hero we've looked at, we've experienced, is in some sense an anti-hero. He stands outside of, he's calling into question, he's critiquing the world around him. Hamlet's in that situation. Is everybody following? So I'm, I'm taking again this notion of a whole, that there's more going on than people see, and most people just go along. They don't question it, they don't see that there's something more. It's in their interest to just be comfortable, just go along. When Hamlet's in his mother's room, she calls him, and he excoriates her. He undoes her. I mean, he, he undresses her. He, he says that what she's been doing is horrible. Um, in Act 3, C 4, about line 150 or so, he says to her, Confess yourself to heaven, repent what's past, avoid what's to come, and do not pretend the do not spread the compost on the weeds. That is to go to bed or do anything to support Claudius, because all you're going to do is feed a rank a poisonous weed to make them rancor. Forgive me this my virtue, for in the fatness of these Percy times, virtue itself of vice must pardon beg. To be good, he has to do what seems to be an act of vice or wrong. Is everybody following? Let's go back to the Iliad. When Achilles stepped outside of the honor code, what was the response of most of his comrades? Did they favor it, approve it, say what he was doing was great? No. No. He stepped, that is what he did by doing that is call into question the honor code, right? When anybody steps outside of that world, when Socrates did it, when Christ did it, people condemn that person because he, what he does is challenge, call into question, the very codes by which people live. Shortly after that, this is still in Act 3, Scene 4, about one line 70, 175 or so, he says, he opens the closet, this is so comic, he opens the closet, he pulls out Polonius's body. The mother's horrified, he's just killed somebody. He's raked her over the coals. He's telling her all the bad she's doing. She married too soon. Um, her husband's um, worse than she knows. And then he says, looking at Polonius's body, I do repent. 
but heaven hath pleased it so to punish me with this and this with me that I must be their scourge and minister. It's a little bit like the disciples saying, everybody's going to hate me because I'm scourging them. I'm telling them what Christ wants me to say. They don't like it. I'm scourging them. But it's my call. That I must be their scourge and minister. I will bestow him and will answer well the death I gave. Then he'll find a place to stuff him. He's going to put him in the hallway. And will answer well the death I gave him. So again, so again, good night. I must be cruel only to be kind. Thus bad begins and worse remains behind. I must be cruel only to be kind. Because, once again, accord from the perspective of the respectable world in which Hamlet moves, what he does seems awful. Yeah? Cruel. But he's trying to be good. He's trying to fulfill his father's quest. Is everybody following the paradoxes here? That very often, uh, let me put it in Christian terms, very often to stand, because it's going to become more explicit at the end, very often to stand with Christ, we have to do things that are going to upset people. They're going to look at what we're doing as bad when we're struggling to do something good. Okay? So let me... With those opening comments, let me stop and we'll turn to the play. But before we do, let me um, let me stop for any questions or comments on one of the things that's holding. There's this strong tradition in Western culture. Every work, every major work, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy, Boethius, Shakespeare, with Helena, with Portia, with all of them. We've been dealing with people who, um, who to, I don't know, to live a more authentic life, to, um, who are not just bound by, the, by appearances of things, um, have to do something that puts them at odds with a culture. And, and they, ma they make it possible to correct something in that culture that has to be corrected if that culture is to go on. If Hamlet doesn't answer this, things are going to get worse. There's a corruption at work spreading. Let me stop. Any comments or questions? or? You know, it's interesting when I think about this, the, at the, you know, so much for me, the it's almost hard to do justice to the importance of the Iliad because it's our founding work. The Iliad and the Odyssey and, and Genesis and Exodus, those are our founding works. In the Iliad, Achilles withdraws from the war. Agamemnon bribes him to come back. Achilles refuses that bribe. He says, such things I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. How many people will um, protest a wrong but uh, but not be willing to give up everything for it. They don't want to risk their job, they don't want to risk losing money, so they take a stand but a stand that becomes half compromised because they don't want to they don't want to lose something. 
every hero we've faced is closer to Socrates and um, Christ because they give up everything. Hamlet's risking everything here. And you know he's going to die at the end. So, so all of these poets are, are, are prophetic in the way that I've been talking about them because, like the prophets of the Old Testament, they're showing us those things we don't want to see about ourselves, how comfortable and complacent. And they're also showing an answer with sometimes some of the things we have to do to answer these wrongs that surround us, that, we're, that are a part of our lives. Okay. Um, let, me, let me... No questions? Anne? No. Pretty blouse. Come on, you guys. I must be doing something wrong here. Something's not right. No objections, Bob. I mean, it makes sense. Okay. Okay. Turn to Act 4, Scene 1. This is the point where the unraveling becomes clear. The scene opened, the act opens with the king saying, there's matter in these sighs. Gertrude is obviously heaving sighs. These profound heaves, you must translate. Tis fit we understand them. Where's your son? Bestow this place on us a little while. She tells everybody to leave so she can tell the king. She describes what happened in her room, and the king is undone. He said, it could have been me. And um, he calls Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and tells them to go get Hamlet. And we looked at this, so I'm just partly reviewing to, to get us up to where we left off. Um, and I want to just recall those lines in Act 4, Scene 3, when Hamlet arrives and the king questions him and says, where's Polonius? And Hamlet lose all, uses all this eating and worms and fishes language as a way of showing that he's aware that the king is feasting on his people, that people are food, that a worm is eating at things. And Polonius was only one of them. Okay, so it's an image. By the way, by the, you know, we did this when we did Dante. Remember, the, the Inferno ends with an image of Satan eating, eating Cassius, um, Brutus, and Judas, the three, the three great traitors, two in the public world and one in the religious world. He's eating them. And that was an appropriate image we saw because the opposite of that is Christ feeding himself in heaven, giving himself up that others can live. So all these food images are not just accidental. They're, they, they go to the vital life of a people. We can't eat without food. But the question is, is a king serving us or are we food for him? And we know from everything we're watching that, that Claudius is using everybody. Um, the king says to Hamlet, now where's Polonius? Hamlet, this is about line, this is Act 4, Scene 3. At supper, there's that food image. At supper, where? Not where he eats, but where he's eaten. A certain convocation of politic worms are eating at him. Your worm is your only emperor for diet. And there's that illusion, I, I think, I mean, it's, we can't prove this definitively, but a certain convocation of politic worms. 
there could be an allusion to the Concord of Worms that took place in 1515, and it was at that Concord that Luther was present. So once again, it's an it may be an allusion to the Protestant influence that's just beginning at this time. Remember, Hamlet's come from Wittenberg, where Luther hung up his thesis. So the whole importance of a private revelation, and um, and, and by the way, I'd, 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 to, to not present this is to not do complete justice to the play. In one sense, I mean, we know that it's private re revelation that gives us the play. Everything that Claudius does has at its beginning a private scene. He killed the king secretly. Nobody knows about it. It's an absolutely private, treacherous act. So it's like the counterpart of the ghost revealing what happened. Um, um, the king confronts Hamlet and um, and sees what a danger is and sends him to England. And it's at that point that we get Hamlet setting off for England and seeing um, what Fortinbras is doing in Act 4, Scene 4. Remember, he's watching Fortinbras go off to risk an army of men for a patch of land. And here, it's once again, it's, it's his um, beating himself up because Fortinbras is fighting for nothing and he, he has a legitimate ground for acting to avenge his father, and he's not done it yet. So he's doing what every epic hero has done. He's beating himself up for not yet having done what he knows he has to do. He says, um, this is about line 50 or so, Led by a delicate and tender prince whose spirit with divine ambition puffed makes mouths at the invisible invent exposing what is mortal and unsure to all that fortune, death, and danger dare, even for an eggshell. Here's a prince, young Fortinbras, doing what he's doing for nothing. Rightly to be great is not to stir without great argument, but greatly to find quarrel in a straw when honor's at stake. How stand I then that I have a father killed, a mother stained? At that point, remember he ends, he says, Oh, from this time forth, my thoughts be bloody or be nothing worse. Um, so seeing Fortinbrock seems to just add fuel to his purpose. In the next scene, we have those painful scenes um, with um, involving the queen and Cordelia, Ophelia. I just want to read again a couple of lines just to keep in mind some of the subtle tensions of the play. Act 4, scene 5, about line 40 or so. Ophelia comes in, the queen is there, she's singing, remember, and generally about flowers. The king says, how do you, pretty lady? Well, God dilled you, that is, that is God give you back. Um, God, um, um, what's the word? Um, repay you. They say the owl was a baker's daughter. Lord, we know what we are, but know not what we may be. The, the, the allusion to the daughter and the baker may refer to a daughter um, refusing to give Christ something in a baker's song. But we're, we're not sure. But she says, they say the owl was a baker's daughter. Lord, we know what we are, but not what we may be. 
That's a telling comment. It's as if she has some sense that she's betrayed somebody. She knows who she is. She also knows she's lost Hamlet and now she's lost her father. Is something happening to her that she's not fully aware of? She continues to sing and then um, remember it's a love song. The king says, pretty Ophelia. It's about St. Valentine's Day. In thee, law, without an oath, I'll make an end on it. She'll bring it to an end. By gist and by St. Clair, charity, alack, and fie for shame, young men will do it if they come to it. By cock they are to blame, quoth she. Before you tumbled me, you promised me to wed. He answers, so would I, a dun, by under sun, and thou hadst not come to my bed. Um, um, does anybody think that Hamlet and Ophelia have gone, have had sex together? In fact, let me ask it as a question. Before this point, because the, the line seemed to suggest that, did Hamlet and Ophelia have sex together before this, before this time, before this breach, breach between them? I'm thinking yes. <laughs> Uh, and I don't know, I don't have any hard evidence about that, but the, uh, the bitterness that Hamlet expresses, especially his conversations and his sarcasm to her uh, uh, during the, uh, while they are watching the play, seems, seems uh, it comes from a jilted lover. Yeah. Anybody else? Kay, what do you think? Has, has Hamlet and Ophelia had sex? Can you put your audio on? Yes. Oh, there it is. Some, you know, reading between the lines, even though the Hamlet, I mean, uh, Shakespeare doesn't come right out and say so, uh, between the lines, uh, I have a feeling that they did. Mm. You guys are nicer than I am, or, no. or worse than I am. I mean, and I always think you guys are too innocent. I'm the dark one. Um, <laughs> anybody have different feelings? Am I going to be alone on this, or, or uh, Suzanne and I are going to be alone on this? Well, I was just thinking maybe because of the time of the play that you know it, it's so prevalent these days. It's like you know it, it's nothing these days, but right. back then. Right. You know, I don't think it, it was as bad as it, you know, it, it is now. So I, I I would say no. I would like to think no. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that question before you asked for a while back as soon as I read it. And um, I have to say yes because I can't make sense of it otherwise. So you're going to need to explain that to me. Okay. I'll try. I'm not sure that I'll be able to do it well, but... Um, I, I, Suzanne, I don't think so. We were. I was asking her today what she thought, and um, or wait, no, her first response was yeah, for along the lines of what you were saying, Connie. I don't think sex was as prevalent then. I mean, as it is today, but I think in in court circles mm -hmm. with royalty, that women would have been um, really susceptible to the come-ons of men, and the the royal court because of its power, would have had real claims on women. So I think in court circles, sex was probably more prevalent than a lot of us would want to admit. 
But so you can say that here, but in my mind, all the evidence is against that. Hamlet is absolutely principled. The two love each other. She's innocent. Um, there's nothing in my mind that I know of. I mean, Kay's phrase is right on, I think, to do anything. We have to read between lines here. We don't know. There's no evidence. Um, Hamlet's too principled. Um, Polonius and Laertes warn Ophelia off pretty bitterly. Laertes, or remember we looked at those lines, Polonius is pretty clear in saying to his daughter, Hamlet's going to trifle with you. So he speaks words that are really disillusioning, um, and I don't think her response shows that they've already had sex. You know, it, it puts her father in a bad light because he's saying that's all Hamlet wants. Um, I, I don't think that's what happens. The, the interesting thing about these lines for me, when she says, before you tumbled me, you promised me to wed. That, by the way, that's a traditional ballad. She's singing traditional ballads, um, in this case, that have to do with romance. He answers, so would I have done by yonder son, and thou hadst not come to my... Um, so would I have done by yonder, before the sunset, I think, and thou hadst not come to my bed. How does anybody read those lines? Doc, how do you read those? Well, he's, he's swearing by the sun. As, as sure as the sun rises, I would have, if you had not. Hold on, I've got somebody's coming. How do you read those, Doc? You mean the song that she sings? The, his response, so what I had done, so I would have done, if by yonder sun thou hadst not come to my bed. Because he would have married her in order to have sex with her, but she came to his bed. So why shouldn't he have sex with her? But that's not Hamlet. Yeah. It, the serious question of being those lines, because it, you know, you, you can take them either way. I mean, it depends how you look at the characters. But um, it seems to me at this point, she's losing it. She's on a margin. And at this point, I, I think she's feeling guilty. You know, she's just emotionally... Um, overloading everything, making more of things, and in a dark way. Um, she's surrounded by darkness, she's overcome by it. Um, but let, let me leave, I don't want to, we're not going to answer it definitively. What the, the point I wanted to just recall for us is that she sings these songs, they're all delicate ballads, um, they, there's a plaintive, sad note to all of them, like the way ba ballads tend to be plaintive and sad. They tend to deal with loss. Um, Kay, I wanted to... Do you remember how you described the singing last week? I can't remember your exact words, but I, I thought your description was really fitting. Why is she singing all these songs? Periodically, she'll, she'll slip into prose and she'll talk, but for the most part, everything she does isn't... So much of what she does is in song. Why? That's what gives her peace. That's where she finds a comfort yeah. from the uh, real world she's placed under, uh, which is very tormenting to her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you prefaced your remarks, if I remember correctly, by saying that she's powerless and that yes. she sings these songs to give her comfort. I, I just thought you yeah. were so right on in that. Yeah. 
Um, but it's almost as if uh, I, I find some similarity in uh, Ophelia's behavior and her singing to uh, Hamlet's feigned madness. Because mm -hmm. in both cases, it gives the speaker the freedom to to say things that they couldn't otherwise say without yep. seeming impertinent. Yep, yep. Uh, yeah. You know, the, Hamlet's conversation with the king about the maggots and the worms would have been, yes. if, if he were perceived as perfectly sane, that would have been a, a very uh, disrespectful thing to say to the, yep. Yep. To the king. And even Ophelia, when she offers uh, Claudius the daisy, she, uh, I'm reading from, from the notes in the book about that. She says, here's a, you should have a, uh, your rue with a difference because it, it signifies that he's from right. uh, a lesser branch of the family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the flowers have a special meaning and she's yeah. aware of them, yeah. The only difference, I mean, the, the, the one thing that I would want to add to that, Michael, is that um, because this question still haunts me. I'm sorry Heather's not here. You all kind of should have. Keep Heather in your prayers, please. I just remembered. God bless it. Because her family's closed in with COVID. Um, but this difference between the, north, the women in the north and the women in the south, that Claudia, or Ophelia and... Um, um, and Gertrude are both very weak women. Um, I think you're right on in your description, Mike, but the interesting thing for me is that Hamlet can carry it off. Ophelia can't. So even if she puts on this anti... or it's not the same. It's not an anti-disposition. She's, she's losing it. You know, she's, she's slipped into another world. She's, she's failing. For Hamlet, it's conscious. It's a mechanism to help him that's conscious. Yes, yeah, she's she's not putting it on. Yeah. So we're watching a young woman fade. And it, it's so different from, just as a contract, it's so different from the role that Portia takes on when she goes to court to defend Antonio. You know. Um. Okay, let's quick. Um, at this point, um, the king and the queen are in, even more upset because of what they're seeing in, in Ophelia and at that moment um, Laertes breaks in with the support of a mob wanting to overthrow the king. They want to make Laertes king now um, because of his line to the throne and it's interesting the Queen's response how cheerfully on the false trail they cry Oh, this counter, you false Danish dogs. <laughs> There's, the Danes are really, as a people, truly are losing it in this play. Something's rotten in Denmark. Something's happening to this people. Um, when Laertes comes in, he makes it clear, this is where he's like Hamlet, about line 120 or so. Laertes says, that drop of blood that Thomas proclaims me bastard cries cuckold to my father, brands the harlot even here between the chaste, unsmirched brows of my true mother. He's, he's got to avenge his father. 
he's in a position exactly like Hamlet's. And what we're I, I, some of you may disagree, but let me let me let me claim this, and and if you disagree, pick it up later. We're seeing something good in Laertes. Our, the sense I think when he leaves for France is that he's partly going there to be a young man and you know have his way, but he's lost his father and as a man of honor he wants vengeance and right now he's holding the king responsible. What is the cause, Laertes, that thy rebellion looks so giant-like? Let him go, Gertrude. Do not fear our person. There's such divinity. I want everybody to tell me what this means. Do not fear our person. There's such divinity doth hedge a king that treason can but peep to what it would, acts little of his will. Tell me, Laertes, why thou art thus incensed. Let him go. There's such divinity doth hedge a king that treason can but peep to what it would. What's the meaning of that word? What does that say about Claudius? He's claiming divine protection, whether he believes it or not. Yeah. What does that say about him? He's a wimp. <laughs> huh? No. He's a wimp. <laughs> well, he's killed a man too. I mean, he, you know, if I mean, in in one sense, that's a blasphemy. He killed a kid. He's using God to say exactly. Um, like Chuck said, you know, he's claiming a divine protection. Was that divine protection lacking with King Hamlet? He killed him. He's claiming a protection by God when he doesn't live up to it. He's not living according to God. He's killed a king. Um, although he's claiming that protection. Because at that time it was believed that kings had the protection of God. Richard II or you know, some of the great kings. Um, Ophelia comes in and, and the king asks Laertes to wait on what they're doing and it's at this point that the king will persuade Laertes that um, that he um, he's, he's innocent that Hamlet was after him and killed his father um, um, shortly after this they get the news that Hamlet has returned from the um, channel crossing. Um, the king reads a letter and I think the king is alarmed because he doesn't understand what happened. Remember he sent Hamlet off to die and here is Hamlet returning. Um, um, when Laertes hears, this is Act 4, Scene 7, about line 50, I am lost in it my lord but let him come. It warms the very sickness in my heart that I shall live and tell him to his teeth. Thus didst thou that is, you killed my father, now you're going to have to deal with me. Um, um, Act 4, Scene 7 still, it's at that point that the king says, um, trust me, um, give me your will, and he tells the story of this friend, or a Norman, named Lamord, who was a great swordsman, who spoke highly of Laertes' swordsmanship. This is about line 90, Act 4, Scene 7. Um, he says, the scrimmers of their nation, he swore, had neither motion, guard, nor eyes if you opposed them. So this report of his did Hamlet so envenom with his envy that he could do nothing but wish and beg your sudden coming or to play with you. What of this? Laertes was your father dear to you, or are you like the painting of a sorrow? Are you putting on it? Well, I mean, that's going to incite him. The king says that this swordsman spoke so highly of Laertes' swordsmanship that he thinks in a contest between him and Han 
um, Hamlet, there would be no contest. So he says, trust me, here's what we'll do. Put poison on the tip of your sword. If you touch him, he'll die. And I will back it up by poisoning the cup so that we'd be sure that he dies. So they go into the fencing match plotting to kill Hamlet. Okay. Um, it's at this point that the queen enters. This is Act 4, Scene 7, still about line 170. One woe doth tread upon another's heel, so fast they follow. Your sisters drown, Laertes. Laertes drowned, oh where? And she tells the story of um, Ophelia going out of this branch and falling into the stream and dying. Um, so let's go to Act 5, Scene 1. Um, just a couple of things here. Uh, um, it opens with these two clowns speaking to each other while they're digging a grave. And the clown says, one clown says to the other, what is he that builds stronger than either the mason, the shipwright, or the carpenter? The, the other says the gallows maker, but he misses. He says, no, the, the only man who makes well is the grave digger. This is about line 50. 50 or so, he says. When you are asked this question, Nick, say a grave maker, the houses he makes last till doomsday. Go get the inn and fetch me a stoop of liquor. If you're following the discussion, but I don't want to go into it because we don't have time, but if you're following this discussion, you know that one of them keeps going argal, argal, which means um, ergo, ergo, therefore. He keeps talking like he's making a logical argument. And so much of what he says is just nonsense. Now hold on to this. Just hold off any questions just for a minute. So Act 5 begins with um, a comic scene. In so many of Shakespeare's plays, either Act 4 ends with songs, sad songs, like um, Othello, where Desdemona is weeping with her maid and they're singing a song, Willow Willow, or a comic scene like this. Now hold on to that for a minute because I want to come back to it. Okay. Desdemona? Hmm? Desdemona? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's when she's combing her hair and they're singing that song about Willow. Um, this is where Hamlet confronts the clown and asks him who was buried there and he discovers that the, that the skull that he's holding belongs to Yorick who was the jester. And the clown makes clear that um, he began his job as a grave digger on the day Hamlet was born. And we know from the information he, that he gets that um, Yorick's been dead 23 years, which, because that was 30 years ago, that means Hamlet was, Hamlet had a friendship with Yorick for seven years before Yorick died. And then the sexton took over and, and was on that date, or seven years earlier when Hamlet was born. So we know that death has been with Hamlet from the very beginning. Um, Hamlet looks at the skull about line 170. Let me see. I knew him, Horatio, a fellow of infinite jest. He goes on. Here hung those lips I have kissed. Um, no one now to mock your own grinning, quite chapfallen. Now get you to my lady's chamber. Tell her, let her paint an inch thick. To this favor she must come, make her laugh at that. Pretty Horatio, tell me one thing, because the jester's role was to make everybody laugh. So Hamlet's saying, go to the queen's chamber. Why, you know, where's your laughing now? Make her laugh. 
Horatio, what's that, my lord? Dost thou think Alexander looked this fashion of the earth? And Hamlet asks this question. When somebody dies, they go to the earth. And he uses this image of taking the earth to make a, um, a plug for a beer barrel. This is about line 195. Um, no faith, not a jot, but to follow him thither with a modesty enough and likelihood to lead it as thus. Alexander died, Alexander was buried, Alexander returneth to dust. The dust is earth, of earth we make loam, and why of that loam, whereto he was converted, might they not stop a beer barrel? Im imperious Caesar, dead and turned to clay, might stop a hole to keep the wind away. Oh, that the earth which kept the world in awe should patch a wall. Are you all following? He's using these metaphors of people returning to the earth and people using this earth to do ridiculous things of these great men. It's at this point um, the procession comes and there's a discussion between Laertes and the doctor about whether a few should have been buried or not. Laertes goes into the the um, grave of Ophelia and um, in great explanations declares his love for her and when Hamlet hears it he jumps in and says that Laertes' love doesn't come close to his own. I don't want to read that but just know that. I want to stop for a second. Why this comic scene with the gravedigger and these allusions to Caesar and Alexander um, and the image of telling Yorick to go, or the jester, yeah, to, to go make the queen laugh. Tell her, let her paint an inch thick to this favor she must come. All people are going to die. Why this come? It, it's, it's so common with Shakespeare's tragedies that in the last act there are these comic scenes. Or there may be pathetic things. We, I think we did Othello together. We did Othello, yeah, we did. Um, and at the, in the either the I think it was the beginning of the fifth act. There's a scene with Desdemona and her Amelia, the maid, combing her hair, and Othello's mad. Something's wrong. The two women know it, and Desdemona and, and Amelia are singing their song with some sense that something not good is happening. It's a it's a melancholy, um, plaintive song before the tragic end. Here it's it's grotesque and it's funny. Why does Shakespeare put this in here? It's relief in a sense. And it also urges us to step back a little bit and uh, it sort of induces some humility to look at the ridiculousness of our situation. <laughs> yes. Anne, go ahead. Do you have something? Well, you know, we look at, at death as such a huge thing. And it does, as he said, kind of lighten it up. And it, it prepares us what's, for what's going to come. All of these deaths, uh, it's that death is not the end and the big momentous thing. That all these people, whether heroic or not, or it, you're going to end up just dead. <laughs> yeah, by, by um, anybody else can jump in here, but to lead into that, you know that it, we begin Ash Wednesday with ashes 
yeah. made into a cross, and the words are um, from dust to came to dust you shall return, or what's the other phrase? Believe in, repent and believe in the gospel is one, and the other one is from dust you came to dust you re return. Aren't those the phrases you hear? Take the dust one, from dust you came, from dust you shall return. Um, anybody want to connect it here with this graveyard here. scene? I don't think well, it's... Go ahead, go uh, ahead. I mean, the, the whole play revolves around a, a dishonest, a, a crime committed in, in lust for power. And the you know the subjects that are discussed in this graveyard are some of the greatest uh the greatest rulers of most in powerful our, in, yeah. in our history yep and they they amount they all ended up as a pile of bones <laughs> below the ground so yeah it, it's like a way of saying that all ambition is vanity yeah 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 Except he does it concretely. It's it's not a moralized statement. It's grotesque comedy. It's really funny to, to see him engaging with this clown. We can call him a, it's a the fool that plays roles in Shakespeare's plays. Because he should. I mean, I, Chuck and Ann, you all touched on it, but how ridiculous all of this is. You, the vanity is a good word. That um, There's this comic aspect that um, to everything that's going on. Everybody's going to die. Everybody's going to die. The, the question ultimately is, how do we die? What are we, what are we living for? And at the end, I mean, to pick up what Mike said, um, Claudius took power by an illicit act. He killed a man. And we're watching that power unravel. I mean, this is, Bo this is pure Boethius. There's no way that power will hold. It will undo itself. It's absolutely, I mean, it's pure Boethius. We're watching a world unravel. That when a man takes that kind of an act, negative consequences are going to follow from it. We're just watching it play out. Um, let's go to the, the final act because there's a couple of things I, I want to do here to get us to the end. It opens with, remember Hamlet was boarded by a pirate ship, or the two ships engaged, and, and Hamlet boarded it. And then they disengaged and he was alone. It's a reminder of how willing he is to act. He had the courage. To, he didn't wait for them to come to him. He boarded it. He was ready to fight them. Remember the last words when he looked at Fortinbras was something like murder and, you know, um, he boards it and fights. He's, he's taken captive and because they're pirates, they know, the, they know how good a thing they've got. They send a note back for ransom. So they trade him for money. He comes back. In Act 5, Scene 2, Hamlet is telling the story, and he says, the very beginning of Act 5, Scene 2, I, these to me are among the most important lines of the whole play. Remember the opening line, who's there? The importance of that line. Match that up against this now. Who's there? Do, are people seeing who's really there, or are they being taken in by appearances? Who's really there? Um, Hamlet's telling Horatio what happened and he says, Sir, in my heart there was a kind of fighting that would not let me sleep. Methought I lay worse than in the mutinies in the bilbos rashly and praised be rashness for it. Let us know our indiscretion sometimes serves us well 
when our deep plots do pall, and that should learn us. There's a divinity that shapes our ends, refute how we will. Somebody paraphrase that. What is he saying? Our rashness, our indiscretion sometimes serves us well when our deep plots do pall, that should learn us. There's a divinity that shapes our ends, refute how we will. And paraphrase that. What's he saying? God's at work. <laughs> Good. God has the final word. Mm -hmm. Along we, the lines of the best laid plans, often yeah. My, exactly. Mm -hmm. Say it again, Chuck. I didn't hear it. Say oh, the best laid plans of my. Oh right. right. Yeah. Yeah. The the beauty of this is that you remember I I quoted those lines earlier when he said that virtue itself of vice must pardon beg that that he has to take on doing something that looks like a vice to the rest of the world when what he's doing is good. And I must be cruel if only to be kind. Remember, he stepped out of a respectable, he stepped out of the way in which most people act. They have to do this. Um, people don't like indiscretions. They'll be critical of them. People avoid them. I think most of us do. I think, I, I hope I'm not misreading you guys. Most of us, I think try to be careful of our actions. But he's saying our indiscretions sometimes serve us well when our deep plots do fall when they fail. Because sometimes, remember, he said rashly and praised be rashness for it. How many of us, when we're doing something, will have an intuition and not act on it? Because it will seem rash. Mm -hmm. And he said rashness and praise be I mean, he's praising a rash act that he ordinarily he'd be critical of. And I'm trying to appeal to everybody here. I'm assuming that most of you, if something came to you and your response was, it's too rash, you wouldn't act on it. He did. And he's saying, our indiscretions sometimes serve us well when our deep plots do Paul, when all the efforts we make to control things fall apart. That should teach us God's, this is Boethius again, God's at work bringing something out of it. Ratio, that is most certain. And so he got up from the cab and he went downstairs. He opened the commission packet, the envelope, in which he saw he was being sent to his death. So he changed it and put in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern's words, yeah. names, and then sealed it up again. And Horatio says, how was that sealed? This is line 48. These are absolutely crucial to the play. Why, even in that was heaven ordinate, lawful, with us. I had my father's signet in my purse, which was the model of that dainty seal, folded the writ up in the form of the others, subscribed it, gave it the impression, placed it safely, the changeling never known. Now the next day was out to sea fight. That's when the pirates attack him. Um, as Horatio hears these words, go down a few lines, about line 60. He listens to Hamlet and he says, why, what a king is this? Remember, he's a prince, but he's seen the nature of a king and what Hamlet does. Remember, we're all called to be priest, prophet, kings. We're supposed to be priests. We're supposed to be kings. We're supposed to be prophets. Why, what a king is this? Hamlet, does it not think thee stand me now upon? He that has killed my king and whored my mother, 
popped in between the election and my hopes that he, he would have been the heir, he was elected, he was in line for the throne, popped in between the election and my hopes, thrown out his angle for my proper life, he's angled everybody to get at Hamlet, and with such cozenage, he's cozening, he's playing up to people, is it not perfect conscience to quit him with his arm, and is it, and is it not to be damned to let this canker of our nature come in further evil? Again, paraphrase that. What's he saying? And with such causing it, is it not perfect conscience to quit him with his arm? And is it not to be damned to let this canker of our nature come in further evil? What's he saying? And go ahead. He's brought it on himself, and it would be wrong not to take him down. You've right. got to get rid of that. Anyway. So does he feel bad about what he's doing? This is a huge turning point because he, he basically gives himself over, resigns himself to say, oh, well, I'm acting under God's plans now and, mm -hmm. and feels divine sanction for what he's about. He feels a duty, in fact. Yeah, and he's also saying to not do it. Would be a dereliction of duty. Yeah, more than a dereliction, it would be damnable. Because what's it? You killed a king. You struck at the heart of a people. So, Orlick or Osric comes in to say that this recreational sword play is going to go on between him and Laertes. You know, this is the way the plan ends. And there's once again there's this humor between Osric and Hamlet and Horatio because here's another fool that introduces. In, injects in what's going on this comic spirit again. He's just a fool, but finally he has to get word back to the king and Laertes whether Hamlet's going to come in to, to do this recreational match. So he leaves. This Act 5, see 2 still, about 195. Um, the queen wants him to come in. Hamlet says she will instructs me. The lord leaves. You will lose this wager, my lord. I do not think so. Since he went to France, I have been in continued practice. I will win at the odds, but thou wouldst not think so. He says, even though the king's betting, I think against him, um, that he'll defeat Laertes. Hamlet's a brave man. So is Laertes. I, I, we just can't take anything away from that young man. He, um, he wants to avenge his father. He's angry. He's plotting with a king to treacherously kill Hamlet, which is not a good but Hamlet thinks he can beat him. Um, I do not think so. Since he went into France, I have been in continued practice. I shall win at the odds. But thou wouldst not think how ill all's here about my heart, but it is no matter. He once again has this premonition. It's exactly what happened on the ship, on the Channel Crossing, right? He had this premonition. Something wasn't right, and it was rash to get up, but he got up, went down, and he actually discovered he was going to his death. So on the basis of that premonition, he saves, he's saved. And he says, once again, Thou wouldst not think how ill hear about my heart, but it's no matter. Nay, good my lord, it is but foolery. But it is such a kind of gains-giving as would perhaps trouble a woman. You know, these sorts of feelings are things that are, women would have and give in to them. He doesn't want to do it, seems, but it's heavy. Horatio, if your mind is like anything, obey it. I will forestall their repair hither and say you're not fit. Now here's 
just for a minute because I want to focus on this. Because this lines up with what his description, you know, when he said he had this premonition and then he went down and, and then sealed it up. And Horatius says, how did you seal it up? And he says, why, even there, heaven was ordinate. Even then, he had the signet in his... So all these strange coincidences are piling up. When coincidence piles up on top of coincidence, can it be coincidence any longer? <laughs> I hope everybody's clear on that. Um, if your mind dislike anything, I'll forestall the repair hither and say you're not fit. Hamlet. Hold on to these words because they're um, probably the most important in the play. Not a wit. We defy augury. We defy augury. That's from the taking of the auspices in that old world. There's an augury, an omen. Something's strange. A, a, a sign is being given that's strange. We can't ignore it. There's special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come, the readiness is all. Since no man of aught he leaves knows what is to leave betimes, let be. The readiness is all. He goes in, and you know that Hamlet, when they start the fencing match, gives two touches. He actually, he actually outduels Laertes. They struggle with each other. The queen, during the, inter or the, breaks, the breathing breaks they take, the queen calls him over and she wipes his brow... Um, and does that a couple of times. Hamlet, they, they come together again, and neither one of them touch this time, but this time they engage each other, and Laertes wounds Hamlet and um, loses his sword, and Hamlet picks it up and wounds Laertes. So both men are touched by poison. It's during that, during that sequence that the queen drinks, and the king knows it. He tries to stop her, but she's already done it. Um, so they're both wounded, and the queen falls. Um, and she suddenly exclaims, this is about line 297, um, how does the king, she sounds to see them bleed. It looks like she's fainting because she's overcome with the blood from the two men. No, no, the drink, the drink. Oh, my dear Hamlet, the drink, the drink. I'm poisoned. Hamlet, oh, villainly. Oh, let the door be locked. Treachery, seek it out. Laertes falls. He's wounded. It's here, Hamlet. Hamlet, thou art slain. No medicine in the world. Now think, because he had planned with Claudius to kill him, and now he's saying to him, no medicine in the world can do thee good. In there thee is not half an hour's life. The treacherous instrument is in thy hand unbated and in venom. It's, it's, the tip is bare and it's poison. The foul practice hath turned itself on me. Lo, here I lie, never to rise again. Thy mother's poisoned, I can no more. The king, the king's to blame. The point in venom too, then venom to thy work. He wounds the king, and at that moment everybody's doing what they would have done in the beginning if he'd acted. Treason, treason, because he's just killed a king. So everybody's still seen by appearances, yes? They're all in this world. Treason, treason. Oh, yet defend me, friends, I am but hurt. Here thou incestuous murderous damned Dane, drink off this poison. Is thy union here? Potion. potion. Um, follow my mother. So he forces him to drink, and the king dies. Laertes, he is justly served. 
It is a poison tempered by himself. Exchange forgiveness with me, noble Hamlet. Mine and my father's death come not upon thee, nor thine on me. Hamlet, now I want to just end with these words and then I've got a couple of questions to ask, so we're good on time. Hamlet says, Heaven make thee free of it. I follow thee, I am dead. Horatio, wretched queen, adieu, you that look pale and tremble at this chance, that are but mutes or audience to this act. Had I but time, as this fell sergeant, death is strict in his arrest. Oh, I could tell you, but let it be. There's too much to tell. He's going to die. Horatio, I'm dead. Thou livest, report me in my cause aright to the unsatisfied. Horatio, never believe it. I am more an antique Roman than a Dane. Here's yet some liquor left. That is, in a moment of losing his honor, a Roman would take his life. We know that from anything Cleopatra. Horatio, this is, these men are so great. Horatio shows his love of his friend because he's going to die with him. He doesn't want him to go. I mean, they are friends. The, the honor that he can do him is taking his own life right here. Report me in my cause of right to the unsent. Never believe it. I am more an antique Roman than a Dane. Here is yet some liquor left. He's going to take some. Hamlet. As thou art a man, give me the cup. Let go by heaven. I'll have it. He's taking it away by force. O oh God, Horatio, what a wounded name, thing standing thus unknown, shall live behind me. If thou didst ever hold me in thy heart, absent thee from felicity a while. Let some time pass here before you go to heaven. What amazing words, absent thee from felicity a while. And in this harsh world, draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. It's at this point that Fortinbras and the English embassy comes and discover it. And, and Fortinbras, who shows a real nobility here, says, bear Hamlet up on this beer and take him off. Now, I've got a couple of questions here that to me are really, really major. So um, I'm glad we're, we've got the time we have. Um, we've already talked about the grotesque comedy, that it's an important perspective because it reminds us that death is always here, that there's something ordinary. No matter how puffed up people get Everybody has to die. And they can take themselves too seriously. Claudius did. The queen did. Polonius did. Um, so, um, But I've got a couple of questions, and let me just put the three of them out and then take them in order. At the end here, is Hamlet the same man he was at the beginning? No. Wait, wait, Chuck, be still. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. Lori, would you mute. grab that guy, even if at a distance? I can't. I'm, I'm trying to mute him, but I can't. I'm going to mute. I'm going to mute myself. <laughs> um, you remember Act Five opens with Hamlet telling Horatio about the Channel Crossing, and he said he had this misgiving, and he goes down, and he opens it and changes the condition, and then seals it back up, and and Horatio says, "How was that done?" He said, he "Again, heaven was ordinate." Um, and then those lines where um, he's invited in. And he has this misgiving, and he, he compares himself to a woman that he's being moved too much. And Horatio says, I'll forestall it. And he says, not a whit. There's a special problem. In fact, let me take a minute. I want to ask, be clear that everybody's clear on what this means before we take my question. 
Not a whit we defy augury. There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If it's not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all, since no man of aught he leaves know. He knows nothing of when he's going to leave. What is it to leave but times? Let be. Somebody paraphrase that. What's he saying? Laura, you want to... Come on! What's he saying? There's special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. Um, If it be not to come, it will be now. If it's not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all, since no man of anything he knows leaves. What's when he leaves knows, he knows nothing of that. What is it to leave the times? Let be. What is we've got to, to get to the question that I'm asking, is he the same man? I we've got to understand this passage. You have a thought on it, Lori? I, I'm, I'm trying to understand if he's speaking of letting, not killing the king, and then no one will ever know what happened. I don't think so. no. So. I don't think so. <laughs> Connie, you've got a thought on it. Come on, you guys. <laughs> and. <clears throat> I think it's whether it happens now or later, what, I mean, God knows what's going to happen, and you have got to surrender to God and and just let it go, uh, whether, it, yeah. I don't know how to, no, yeah, got it, yeah, I mean, he doesn't quite phrase it that way, but it, um, nobody knows when our end is. If it's now, it will be now. If it's not, it'll be later. But the whole question is the. Re- so explain that line. The readiness is all. Since no man of anything he leaves knows, what is it to leave the times? Let be. What does he mean by readiness is all? Chuck, go ahead. Hey, I raised my hand. I'm good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, there's, there are echoes of, of, uh, of the gospel. No one knows the hour of his coming. Yeah. And the readiness is all means... Well, you, so because of that, you've got to be ready if you're... Right. If you're right. right. At all times. Yep. Now hold on in my next question, because I want to... If you could just hold on for a second to the rest of the group. Is Hamlet the same man now as he was in the beginning? And is his fulfillment of the quest in the same spirit in which he picked up the quest from his father? Mike, go ahead. Well, I don't know. I mean, he he steps out with his, uh, you know, after his visitation of the coast, uncertain and sort of floundering. He devises a way to 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 tap into the king's emotions. And he he gets some certainty there, but then he doesn't act 
and yet he does act because he kills Polonius thinking it's the king. And that's the reason Polonius dies, because Hamlet thinks that it is, in fact, Claudius behind the curtain. Right, right. But, and, but even then, I don't think he's uh, as resigned to his, his vengeance as he is at the end of the story. Kay, or David, you guys, go ahead. Uh, I think uh, when, uh, uh, before, at the beginning of the play, uh, I kind of think uh, Hamlet was a very indecisive man, can't uh, make uh, decisions. Yeah. And his uh, phrase of uh, to be or not to be, that is the question, mm -hmm. summarizes uh, his uh, indecisiveness and then uh, after different events occurring then somehow he is uh, becoming more of a uh, firm and focused after making the mistakes of mistakenly killing Polonius and in the big, before that, he's, he decided he's going to execute vengeance on yes. uh, Claudius, yeah. and then goes and then sees him praying, and then he says, well, I don't want to send him to heaven, because if right. I killed him when he's praying, then he'll right. be going to heaven. Right. That's kind of, you know, wishy-washy to me, if he, once he decided it, then he should execute it. But that, yeah, then eventually he kind of matures, sort of, and he's more focused. And there, that, let it be, that kind of tells me that he is beginning to realize God's hand, his hand is at work, and whatever he does, let God take care of it, so to speak. Yeah. Kate, can you, can you focus just for a second? I mean, you, you've given a good answer. I've got questions about part of it, but can you care? Is Hamlet changed? Can yes. you na name the change? How is he different? Like in the beginning, he was like a, a to be or not to be. Mm. Very indecisive. Yeah, okay. Uh, but somehow in his quest to then execute then revenge uh, on uh, his father's murderer he is becoming more focused on carrying out that mission yeah in order to avoid being damned yeah Connie well, I was wondering, did he ever uh, look at it as self-defense? Because he knew now, you know, at the beginning, of course, you know, it was vengeance for sure. Um, but at the end, you know, the king wanted him dead. Does that come into play at all? You know, like he's like, oh, well, it's more self-defense now. <laughs> I don't think so. In the, way, in the way that you're putting it, Connie, I don't think so. In, in, and let me try to pick up both what you and Kay are saying. And some of you may disagree with this, but... It seems to me after the mousetrap play, Hamlet's committed. He, he had to do, he couldn't do anything, couldn't trust anybody. 
See, wait. I'm gonna. I'm gonna wait. Chuck, you've been, and I'm glad for you. But come on, go take up my question because I know you've been wanting. I, to... I think it's my turn yet, but I will. Yeah, go. Uh, he becomes Brutus. Becomes Brutus. Listen, uh, you know, I like this. The key insight that you've given us early on is you don't understand the parts of the play until you see the whole. And it's caused me to go back and reflect now on things I saw earlier. So it wasn't for nothing that he had that conversation with Polonius about his young acting career, in which Polonius tells us what? About how he was in the play where Caesar's killed. Right, right. And, uh, and he says, uh, now I'm more an antique Roman than a Dane. I think the word antique was just a nod to Shakespeare's times. He could have said Roman, but. He didn't want to be identified as a Roman at that time, but an antique Roman. And he sees himself as Brutus. He saved wait, wait, that's, wait that? that's Horatio. No, that's Hamlet. In that in the Caesar in the passage we just read a minute ago? Did I get that did I get that all wrong? Horatio's at the end when Hamlet says stay alive and and Horatio says no when Horatio's planning to take his life, if these are the lines you're referring to. He says, never believe it. I am more an antique Roman than a Dane. Here's yet some liquor. He's going to take Horatio's going to take his life to be with his friend. So he's looking at himself as a Roman and doing that. And Hamlet says, no, absent thee from Felicity, while well, wait, because you've got to you've got to save my good name. By the way, I think there's something very Roman in Hamlet. I mean, they're, in the sense that he's a he wouldn't do this unless his sense of honor was about to be torn. He said, stay alive. You've got to save my name. Because no, you're the only person who knows you're the only person who knows the whole. If you don't tell this story, nobody's gonna get it. So you have to stay alive. That, that is interesting. You have to be Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> you had, somebody has to tell this story. Because if it doesn't get told, nobody will see. This great wrong will not be understood. Let me go back and pick up what Connie and, and Kay were saying. I, I think that Hamlet's absolutely firm and resolved, decisive, after the mousetrap play. He intends to kill. We know that from his killing of Claudius. I mean Polonius. He only does it because he thinks it's Claudius. Hiding. When he passes Claudius at prayer, he says, this is higher in, you know, salary. He doesn't kill him then. He would have, because we see him killing him in the next scene, or thinking he's killing him. From that moment on, Hamlet is decisive. He, he, he's committed. Um, he's sent away. There's a potential revolt in what happens with Laertes, and he fights with the Pyrrhus. You know, he's, he's just a brave man. He goes into the sword fighting saying... Um, he, um, um, he's ready to do it. There's that line that I read earlier too when when he's watching Fort and Brass go off and he says as he's watching this guy, it's just another instance of somebody spurring him. Oh, from this time forth my thoughts be bloody or nothing worse. Last time I asked everybody to make a comparison between Fort and Brass and Hamlet. I, I don't want to take the time tonight, but you know, it would be good to look at Fort and Brass because Fort and Brass is not an intellectual. He's just a sort of jock. He's going to kill. It, I, this is so important. Hamlet carries all this stuff. The theology, the faith, the issue of a private revelation, how to test it, what to do, is the, is the ghost real or an evil, you know. He's carrying so, it, the, the woman he's loved. 
is involved in betrayal. There, there's just so much this young guy is carrying that Fortinbras doesn't get close to. So my question is, is he the same man? Is the spirit in which he kills Claudius at the end the same spirit as his father's? Does, does he kill Claudius in the same spirit that his father passed on to the quest to him in the beginning? Because Claudius is finally killed. Or is that spirit, has that spirit been changed? Is his father's spirit still alive? Is that what's, so the old honor code has just been carried forward? Or has it been changed? Is he the same man, or is he changed? He's now trying to remove a canker. It's not about revenge. Okay, Anne, when he kills mm -hmm. the king at the end, mm -hmm. does he kill him because the principal motive in that act is his father and the quest that he gave, or is it something else? I think it's something else. Uh, a man who was not a rightful king, who was a terrible leader, uh, is leading the people, and that's not that's not how the way that it should be. He's not doing. It's it's just wrong. And I think then in the end, when it goes to Fortinbras, Fortinbras is the son of a king. And he is somebody who is willing to fight. And I think that's a way of working everything out. He says, Laertes says, when the two of them are now poisoned, both of them are, and the queen is shouted out, I'm poisoned, it's the king. Hamlet says, O villainy, ho, let the door be locked, treachery, seek it out. Laertes falls, and he describes what's happening, that Hamlet's about to die. The foul practice has turned itself on me. He's going to die. They're all dying. Lo, here I lie, never to rise again. Thy mother's poisoned. I can no more. The king, the king's to blame. Hamlet, the point in Venom 2, the king and Laertes had planned a treacherous act. The point in Venom to then Venom to thy work, he hurts the king, treason, treason, um, and it's then that um, um, he sends the king to his death. And Laertes says, he's justly served, it is a poison tempered by himself, exchange forgiveness with me. And the very last breath, Hamlet and Laertes forgive each other. Um, and Laertes is the one who initiates it, exchange forgiveness with me. He's the one who planned to kill him. So Hamlet went into it. Wait, Connie, to go to this. I don't, I, here, I want to answer your comment. Hamlet knows that something's wrong. He knows the king is bad. From the view, so there's no question about that. He's too bright. He's a, he's a bright young man. He's, he's seen what Polonius does. He's seen the effect on Ophelia the woman he loves, he's watched her give in. So he knows the king's behind it, but there's nothing in the text to lead us to believe that he knows that he goes into that fencing match, you know, with the, with the two, the king and Laertes, planning to kill him. For all his knowledge, it's a fencing, you know. 
But in the back of his mind, there's not a question. He knows he can't trust the king. But I don't think we have any sense from the text that he knows they're poisoned. We don't know that. It, it was secret between the king and Laertes. Um, and that's why it's important when Laertes says the point was in venom, the you know, poison in the cup. So suddenly he's presented with all these things. The king poisoned the cup, the mother's died, Laertes is accidentally wounded. So my question is, is the spirit in which he kills the king, the same spirit passed on by his king, by his father, and the same spirit in which he received it? Or is it changed? And let me just remind everybody, in the beginning, Hamlet could trust nobody. Absolutely nobody. He's absolutely isolated. He doesn't even trust the father's goat. He has to put on that mousetrap play to find out. And when he does, he trusts it. I mean, he knows the ghost is real. But he doesn't trust anybody. And then he has this experience on the channel crossing where he says, our indiscretion sometimes serve us well when our deep plots do Paul, and that should learn. There's a divinity that shapes our ends, refute them how we will. God was at work in some way. That comes towards the end of his life. And then he talks about the, the, the signet, and Horatius says, how was it sealed? And he says, why, even there, heaven was ordinate. Hamlet learned on that channel. By the way, and you know this from the Odyssey, in, in literature, for the great writers, Homer, Dante, Shakespeare, when the sea comes in, it generally is an image of some grace, some mystery, something not to do with land, homes. and It's at sea that this thing happens. Well, even there, heaven was ordinate. He has this misgiving again. Horatio says, I'll forestall it. And he says, no, not a whit. We defy augury. There's special providence. If it's going to be now, it's not to come. If it's not to come, it will be now. Um, the, ready, the readiness is all. He trusts in God. Is this the same man who began the play? And is the spirit in which he kills Claudius the same as it was in the beginning? We're out of time. I'm going to say no. I'm not sure where you guys are on this. Um, at the end, I mean, remember he's a Christian, actually Catholic, coming from Wittenberg. His father lays on him a burden that, that in spirit belongs to an old honor code. It's a heroic code. It's his father. It's that old honor code we saw in the Iliad and you know, Hamlet is a Catholic, is a Christian. He believes vengeance is mine. Um, I, I believe he puts himself at risk when he passes the king and says, I'll catch him when he's doing a damnable act because he wants to send him to hell. That's not his, he can't do that according to his faith, but that's, he walks by, but it's not for, I think Hamlet's in danger then. When he kills the king at, at the end, it's a spontaneous act in reaction to mother just died, Laertes is, he, they're both wounded. It, it's a completely different situation, but now he carries that channel crossing in him. So my contention is that um, the quest is fulfilled, that good has worked in the world, this Boethius, that it's answered evil. It's answered it because of the courageous acts of this man. You know, it was a spontaneous thing. He, the, the king's killing everybody around him. 
So I would argue that what happens at the end um, is the result of a changed Hamlet. He still carries the heroic, the heroic part that we've seen in men in so many of the epics we've read. But it's a different spirit. You know, the readiness is all. Um, there's providence in the fall of a sparrow to come. All of that is closer to Christ. You know, it's, it's closer to Joan of Arc when she was at war. I mean, this, this guy is a very, he's a warrior still, but there's something different at work in him. So here's my final question, quick. Is God at work in this world or not? We don't, Shakespeare doesn't give us any images. But the question that I put to you three weeks ago, is God at work in this world? Boethius says, um, there is no bad fortune. God is always work. He's always working to bring good out of evil. Is God at work in this play? Does anybody see him in the play? I'm going to answer that. No. Hamlet. Except Hamlet. I was going to say except Hamlet. Good, good. But I, I want to, does everybody see the iron? Nobody sees him. Nobody, except the poet and Hamlet. Does anybody else see God at work in this world? Particularly because they've got all these dead bodies. Imagine yourself going into a room and finding all these dead bodies. How many people would say, God's at work here? Are you guys following? This is so important, so important. People don't see well. We think we do, and we judge by appearances. Shakespeare does everything he can to get us past appearances to something deeper. So the final question is, is God at work in this world? Do we see him? Well, yeah, clearly he works through Hamlet. I'm not sure if anybody else sees that. Yeah. And I don't have any sense at the end, you know, when he kills Claudius, is that he's saying, originally I set out to do this in my father's name, now I'm doing it in your name, God. It's a spontaneous, it's the act of an honorable man reacting to an evil working in his presence. It's the readiness is all. It's ready to be God's instrument. You, can, do you, did you hear, Suzanne, can you, hear, can you say it louder, Doc? I think the readiness is all. He goes in saying, I'm ready for whatever God wants me to do. Or whatever's going to happen, you know. Let's stop. I, this is an extraordinary play, and I'd like to leave everybody thinking about it. It's just, um, Shakespeare's, remember, he, we've studied, we did Oedipus, right, together? No, I don't think so. Wow. Uh, we didn't do we it. Didn't. We didn't, okay. He's not a pagan playwright. It's not Oedipus. This is a, a playwright dealing with tragedy in a Christian world. Hamlet's Christian, Othello's Christian, Macbeth is Christian. The deaths they come to are strange, and people can read them the way they do pagan tragedies. Mm -hmm. But I hope everybody's seen this tragedy ends with bodies strewn all over the stage, so it looks like a pagan tragedy. My contention is it's not. It's a Christian tragedy. It's, it's showing some good at work. People, if people just look at the dead bodies, they're going to say, how horrible. What a bad man. Or what in the world is Hamlet is saying to Horatio, stay alive, absent thee from felicity a while. This story needs to be told. People need to see. Because nobody in that room, nobody in the kingdom, understands how they've been played. 
So Shakespeare is always helping us to see more deeply, particularly with respect to bad things. Following Boethius, there is no bad fortune. God is always bringing some good. Okay? We're late. Let me just leave you with this last thought for tonight. Um, I hope all of you will think a lot about this. Maybe even reread the last scene. Act 5, scene 2 is a, you know, yeah. Laurecio asks for forgiveness. Um, Laertes asks for forgiveness. Horatio says he wants to kill himself, and Hamlet says, no, wait. You know, they, they carry Hamlet's body off as a noble prince. It's a touching scene. Remember, it all started with this young man returning from Wittenberg with no, with no idea what he would encounter when he got home. How, much of our, of us, how many of us are prepared for whatever happens in life to ask questions whether something like this might be going on and we don't see it. That's probably one of the best questions I can end this on. But I want to I want to ask just you know to point you forward. Next week we're going to start Lear, so I hope you all are reading. Or it's the most painful play in my judgment. It's the most painful of Shakespeare's plays. Lear and Antony and Cleopatra to me are the. And Shakespeare goes back to a period eight centuries before Christ. I already mentioned this before, so I'm just repeating. Why did he do this? Why did he do this? Um, is there something to learn about God's presence in the world from this play? Um, or is this just another brutal play? It's about a lot of people dying. And by the way, just to make this clear, most critics see King Lear as an affirmation of Shakespeare's cynicism. That he believes that this is a meaningless universe, just like Ham lots of critics believe that about it. They say Hamlet is, Hamlet, Shakespeare is showing how meaningless life is because look at all these people dying. I hope everybody's hearing. That's the modern reading. Look at how meaningless life is. He's a procrastinator. He acts at the end and all these awful things happen. Boethius is saying no, and I, I believe, you know my reading of the play, I don't believe that's what he's doing. He's showing there's this extraordinary meaning. There's an actual good being brought out of it, even if people don't see it. Can we see it? I mean, the push of the whole course for me is there to help us see, like that picture I showed you of St. Gregory's Mass. Um, if you haven't seen it, go online, you guys. But that's my question with Lear. It's a painful, painful play. Why did Shakespeare write it? Just to show how stupid people are and and that the stupid decisions people make lead to deaths? That the decisions a king, a leader, makes can result in the undoing of a kingdom? There's a king. He gives, up his, he gives up his authority. He's a king, once again. Um, so lots of critics are going to say, what a stupid thing. It just shows how stupid people are, that life is meaningless, that this King does this, and the result of it is all these people dying. Is that what Shakespeare's sh showing, or is there something more? That's well, what. You know, Sorry. Back to, back to your question, Bob. But is is God at work here? I, I have to. You know, we don't we don't have an Act Six to the play, but if we could imagine, you know, it, the entire most of the royalty of Denmark's been wiped out. 
here. Uh, you can imagine that in in Act Six and and for years after, Denmark becomes a vassal of Norway, and and they have to live under the under the control of a of a maybe maybe a dim-witted king, but one who is uh, perhaps more righteous than Claudius would have been, or 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 at least not burdened. I would put it this way: We just watched a movie where this line came. Not burdened by self-conscious, this kind of self-consciousness that Hamlet has. He's a more direct, unself. You know, I, I don't see Fortinbras as a, as a very reflective kind of person. And maybe, I mean, that's Shakespeare's answer. Maybe that's what they. I don't know. We don't. We don't need a sixth act. But we're left with this sense of a new beginning. What's going to happen? But I don't think we need a sixth act to know that God has been working. So even if we never saw him in the play, he was there all along. Or, or the Channel Crossing would have never happened, and Hamlet would have never had those lines about um, define augury and you know the readiness of all. Um, he's showing God at work in a man's life and what happens to, to change him. Um, so anyway, my, so my big question for next the next few weeks we'll spend a few weeks on Lear it's a go online I'll put my notes on that I've written for the France I'll put all of them on so you can look at my notes on the whole play um, it's a beautiful play it's painful a father turns his um, kingdom over to his children by the way here let me try to help sorry I wasn't am I holding you beyond my time but I think all of you know that it's sort of common knowledge that when parents die and leave their wills to their kids, there are almost always problems. I mean, the just headache problems. The kids, what they do, I mean, the, the sorts of things you are sorry to see children do happen. Lear turns his kingdom over to his kids, and it's chaos. And the one child that he disinherited was the best one. And I'm not going to say what happens, but it's, it's about that point where a parent relinquishes his life and does something to get ready for the next one. So let me try to put this in perspective. In one sense, this play is about all of us. All of us are close to that point where we're going to leave this world. Um, Chuck and Laura, you're too young. But, so Connie. Connie, never Connie, Connie, you, I don't know, but we're all approaching that point. Suzanne and I are certainly there. We're leaving the world. How do we hand it on? How do we pass it on? And um, given the, the sort of commonplace experiences that when, when people reach this moment, it's usually bad times. You know, you hear these horror stories about wills and what happens with kids and, you know, so... This is taking up that moment. Lear is preparing to leave the world. He passes on his inheritance, his power and authority to his children. What do we learn about that moment? How important it is to prepare for leaving this world to get ready for the next. Christ was very clear. His last words were, I mean, so he left in a death. He comes back and he says, go out and baptize. He gives specific instructions. What do parents do when they reach that moment? What are they passing on to the kids? 
will there be things that they're passing on that they don't see that might have harmful ramifications? Are you all following? So there's lots going on in King Lear. But the major question again is, is God at work in it? <laughs> this is six or eight centuries before Christ. Is God at work in the world or not? Most critics say this is just an affirmation of Shakespeare showing a modern that the world is meaningless, that the stupid things we do are going to lead to death, just as they did in Hamlet. Are those critics right, or are they missing something? Okay, Connie, I'm giving you a test next week. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I might not be here. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, um, um, Melody has written me. She's and I, she, she'll be away for a couple of weeks. Um, I think she's involved in a creative writing class. She's so serious about it. Keep her in your prayers. Um, you guys enjoy King Lear. It's, a, it's like Hamlet. It's a very rich, very rich story. Okay. Is Shakespeare doing something? And I think most people don't see what he's doing. So um, we've got something good in store for us. Okay. You guys, keep us in your prayers, please. And we keep you in our prayers. Um, you guys be safe. Have a good week. Okay? Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay, quit, quit. It's on the floor. You think Lear is the most painful play? Close it, quick. Um.